0: first watch hello and welcome to an all-new medieval episode of the first watch podcast this is our final episode of our check new wave series i am zach and i am joined as always by cole how are you
1: I'm a little bit chilly. How about you?
0: Good. You can warm your feet in the recently burnt fire over there. Uh, (laughs) We are joined, as we have been for our previous three installments, by Riley of the JMCT Podcast. How are you?
2: I'm great, once again. Really lovely to be here.
0: Yes. This was an exciting one for me. Today, we're talking about Franchisek Blaschil's Marketa Lazarova, which is considered, in the modern Czech Republic, to be the greatest Czech-language film ever made as the only one of the four movies that we had planned for this that i had not seen so i just watched it for the first time last night i am still kind of glow of experiencing it for the first time really excited to jump into it with you guys before we kick off all of you caught up with anything recently
1: yeah i actually did have a moment to go see a new rom-com called love again directed by jim strauss starring priyanka chopper jones sam Hewen. he's one of the guys from outlander And in her first major supporting acting role, the one and only Miss Celine Dion. (laughs) What a beautiful
0: contrast to the Czech medieval film of the day.
1: Imagine if she did like a soundtrack for Merkata Lazarova. (laughs)
0: Like Heavenly Choir.
1: Yeah, just a little number. But this is a story of a children's novelist who loses the love of her life in a car accident. And two years later, as a way to get through the trauma and the grief of losing him, she starts texting his old phone number, all of her inner thoughts and feelings and emotions. And somehow the number switched over to someone else, a journalist, the Sam Hewing guy, And he starts getting these text messages from this random number. And instead of, you know, being a normal person and saying, hey, I'm sorry, Uh, I don't know who you're talking to, but this is not a deactivated phone number. He starts falling in love with her through the text messages. And when he's assigned to cover Celine Dion for his newspaper, he asks her for help on how to win her over okay you know how there's those hallmark rom-coms mm-hmm. where someone loses the love of their life and then they're suffering and god has a plan for them to fall in love mm-hmm. again imagine that and you just swapped out god for celine dion and that's what this is it's mm-hmm. kind of demented
0: it sounds like it's a little bit of like a you got male type of setup too maybe it's
1: like one massive act of gaslighting
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah but romantic
0: hmm. Mm. riley did you have anything
2: i haven't had a chance to watch anything new or novel this week but i've been busy playing the new zelda game so that may explain part of why (laughs) that is
0: my copy of that's arriving today uh i've been playing the older one the previous game breath of the wild in anticipation for it and And cole and i were discussing you watching marketa lazarova and there's a new christian Munju film that i can go and see and we were just joking around about the big contrast and i was like no you know There's actually kind of a good synergy between The Legend of Zelda and Marketa Lazarova, fucking riding around (laughs) on horses and throwing rocks at people.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I suppose I hadn't really thought about it like that, but yeah.
0: Trudging around through the snow and shit.
2: Diving from one world into the other is not that stark of a contrast, (laughs) although the world that the various factions in Marketa Lazarova occupy is somewhat less idyllic, I would say, than Hyrule. A lot gloomier in general, and just more portentous.
0: I have some notes on that that I'll get into once we get to the film, because I think that Flashill and his film's relationship with like the natural world is quite an interesting one. To keep on topic of things that relate to today's film, I saw a new release that was about faith and uh, you know the crisis of a young girl just like Marqueta. It's called "Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret." based on the 1970 Mm. novel by Judy Blume. It's a comedy starring Rachel McAdams, Kathy Bates, and it concerns a young girl in 1970. Her parents have an interfaith marriage. Her mother is Christian. Her father is Jewish. And because of this, she has this kind of identity crisis of I don't know what my relationship with God is that intersects with just being a young girl in middle school, going through puberty, experiencing romance for the first time, there's a lot of menstruation content in both the novel and the film. To me, it's kind of like Carrie for more well adjusted people, people that don't have the same strife in their (laughs) backgrounds, as maybe Carrie lovers would have, I don't know, because it's just that same, like, what does it mean to come of age as a young girl in America, specifically in the 1970s, which I think when you read the novel, because it is from that era, you can sense it was never like Hugely controversial, but it was the subject of some controversy. It was banned in some places, but it has endured and remains a childhood staple in America for a long time. And so you can still detect that power of a message that is now over 50 years old. But in making the movie set in 1970 and doing not really anything to update the text. It just makes a lot of the conflict come off point. Like the whole interfaith marriage between like a Christian and a Jew, that's something that maybe in 1970 was like, whoa, big deal. And in 2023, is like, yeah, I mean, that seems normal. Yeah. <laughs> and it, for me, it kind of worked more on the basis of it's a pretty good comedy. And Kathy Bates and Rachel McAdams particularly are really good. Kind of a down the middle Judy Bloom. It's not doing a lot to revitalize it or rework it.
1: Mm-hmm. I want to catch up with that at some point.
0: I think it's slightly enjoyable, but I don't think it's going to be like anything that really lasts you know it'll mm-hmm. get some praise people will enjoy it it will fade Yeah. It's the follow-up... Oh, I'm forgetting her name. The director of The Edge of Seventeen. I never
2: saw that. Yeah, me neither. I forget her name as well, but I did see that film. A lot of people like that film. I didn't really get anything out of it personally. Very 2010s coming-of-age story. It's got a lot of pointed emotional flourishes to it. It's very sort of grounded, down-to-earth. I think that's what a lot of people appreciated. It's not like fluffed up with too much silliness or irreverence. It's just sort of very straightforward and... It was good. It's a good film. It's just not really something that I found myself relating to.
0: Kelly Freeman Craig is the name of that director. Mm. Looks like it's got a pretty strong cast, but yeah, that's sort of how I felt about this. I went to see it in theaters. A lot of mom-daughter couples. They had a kind of a flavor to the audience of it, and what I deduced was I'm just not really in that audience, but I had a pretty good time regardless. Mm. So, enjoyable, effective, probably not something that's going to stick in my mind through the end of the year or ever be a personal favorite mm. by any means. In terms of Some other stuff that I've been watching, something a little bit older that throws us back in time to help get us prepared for today's topic of feudalism and the Czechoslovak New Wave. I watched a movie that has been on my watch list for years, like since I was a teenager, like 12, 13 years old, based on a concept that Paul came up with maybe about a year ago now when we... I mean, it was actually... The second time that you saw Robert Eggers' The Northman, it was the first time the rest of us got to see it. Do you want to explain what that concept was briefly? Yeah.
1: So this concept, and this is something in particular in historical films that I really love. You know, a lot of historical films, they'll be set in a time period, but then they still have modern ideas. And for me, that's just not as inherently interesting as historical films that really delve into the time period including the way that characters look at the world and how they react and what their morals are, what their belief system is, and you dubbed it the extinct world. Mm -hmm. So these are all films that are set in a place and time that are pretty far removed from where we are now. And that is reflected in the characters and how they act and what they believe in and how they interact with each other. And The Northman is a great example of that because the way that they act is not the way that people act now frankly you know no one is going out to get revenge on their uncle and killing people left and right or you know maybe they are it just hasn't hit the news yet it'll hit the news at some point but the, all of these religions interacting with each other for example
0: the stuff that stuck out with northmen or just with anything that kind of fits as a criteria would be like cannibalism, slavery animal or human sacrifice like expressions of faith that are just very far removed From what exists now and what we think of as normal, acceptable behavior. Something where if an Englishman got off a boat in a place and saw people doing this, would certainly think of it as barbaric because it is so removed in time or so far removed in space from that culture. And I think a lot of the movies that I find most interesting and most effective within this kind of broad category is when we see the conflict of a more modern civilization. And a less modern civilization. And the example, of the movie that I watched is *A Gear: The Wrath of God* by Werner Herzog. Mm,
2: fucking Ding. banger! Spectacular yeah.
0: movie! Like
2: amazing. I was what a picture.
0: The first image of that, you just see this humongous group of Spaniards and natives to the where are they at in South America? They're in South America, but I forget where.
2: Is it Bolivia or something like that on the the western I, side? think it's Bolivia.
0: Regardless, it's this huge group of Spaniard conquistadors and natives and they're just walking down this mountainside cliff that's like hilariously steep and winding and they're carrying these big wheels of the wagon and the whole movie is like this rapturous transcendent experience that is also like wickedly comedic because it's about these spaniards who have been convinced by the natives to go and look for the completely fictitious city of el dorado and so they are just in the forest going up the amazon in search of a treasure that doesn't exist while they basically die one by one from disease sabotage natives killing them and hunger and everything else relates very much like a very 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 clear influence on godland we did that episode on back in the month of april like very clear relationship between what Palmerson is doing there and what Herzog is doing. And then uh, it's not my final note, I could talk about this movie all day, but like, (laughs) Klaus Kinski channels some fucking Greek god of fury and is like I mean, he's always giving 11 in everything I've ever seen him in but this is just like as the titular character and he's just kind of like the scheming conniving, brutal insane. The whole movie setup is very akin to Apocalypse Now or Heart of Darkness, except Kinski is closer to like Kurtz than he is to Mm -hmm. Willard, the main character. He's closer to the Brando character in terms of his fucking absolute feral insanity.
1: That guy's mental doors, they're not off the hinges. The hinges have been blown off and there's just a giant gaping hole.
0: Oh my God. (laughs) In terms of Apocalypse Now, it's got this really cool, and I think that this helps with the period vibe. It's got this really great documentary sensibility. And I don't know if I'm just projecting that because it's Harrisog and he's done a lot of documentaries, but it just really soaks in the environment, the wildlife. Like You've got sloths, Mm -hmm. monkeys, mice, everything, birds. And you get this sense that you're recording these natives as they actually are in their Mm -hmm. authentic wardrobes. There's like a guy that plays this pan flute that I think is really kind of a vital element to the movie. So you're getting this documentation of culture. And I also think it kind of works like you're watching a behind-the-scenes, Heart of Darkness-style documentary of, like, here's Kinski in South America amid this insane fucking production, losing his actual mind. It feels like a combination of Apocalypse Now and Hearts of Darkness. Like, it's both the narrative Mm -hmm. and documentary at the same time.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a big element of Herzog's 70s films that really, really appeals to me, is that kind of immersive immediacy and that sense of some kind of reality just being captured in a very raw way. It's something that's very true of the other big epic that Herzog and Kinski made together, Fitzcarraldo, Mm. although I'd say that it's much more intense and, again, primal in a certain sense with Aguirre. That film is just a tough watch just because of how you really feel as though you're embedded within those forests and those mountains, and it's inescapable and just trudging along in this doomed quest that particular kind of urate style that herzog has the way he captures it it's hard to say how orchestrated that is versus how much of a product of the location and the constraints of how it was mm-hmm. made but either way the result is just so unique and arresting yeah
1: yeah it's almost claustrophobic in a sense to watch because you're just trapped there with them
0: right you're on this barge that's taking on water on the river the way that I described it is to compare it to the Conrad novel and the Coppola film again, it follows a structure of this group of people who are going up a river, right? So it's a very point A to point B quest. You watch Apocalypse now, and what it is is each step deeper towards their path to Cambodia, the movie's breaking down into mm-hmm. this kind of nightmare logic. Yeah. What's happening in this film, in a gear, is They're not going anywhere. The narrative is disintegrating. They're going down the river, but they're spinning in circles. Sometimes they are literally spinning in circles. There is never a point B. There's no destination. They're not fucking going anywhere. so it's much more like amorphous. And because of that, I think it gets extremely tense psychologically because Mm. you realize that these people are going to snap, like they're going to freak out. (laughs) It's not going to be good
2: yeah in a certain sense it's closer to like the blair witch project than <laughs> apocalypse now yeah the clock
1: is <laughs> ticking uh,
2: yeah that kind of circular doom movement towards nowhere and nothing whereas apocalypse now is that very much like descent into hell gear is just like the inevitable is already here essentially and mm-hmm. there's no descending we're just becoming more and more aware of it
0: so we already just a second ago made that joke about how Marqueta isn't that idyllic. But I do think you can start to see a comparison point here between Herzog and between Lashil in the way that they try to capture the beauty of nature and how there is a kind of serene, harmonious quality to it, harsh and unforgiving and punishing as Mm it is. The problem is not that nature is unforgiving, it's that you decided to try to go into it in full plate armor instead of finding some way to, you know, achieve equilibrium with your environment, which takes time. And I think that's the colonial message is you don't just show up and fucking acclimate to South America. You acclimate to it over the course of lifetimes, generations.
2: Yeah, it should be a almost a collaborative process between the people and the environment. It's this integration that happens through mutual understanding. You need to have respect for nature.
0: And you could develop that by having mutual understanding with natives, but instead they shackle them up and kill them and Enslave them and do all sorts of other terrible
1: things. Yeah. And that's something that Herzog's been interested in throughout his entire career. I mean, going even all the way out to grizzly Man, for mm. example.
0: Mm. There's one thing that was a quote from Roger Ebert on Herzog that I just think spoke to this film quite specifically. He does not want to tell a plotted story or record amusing dialogue. He wants to lift us up into realms of wonder. And I just think that's such a perfect little way to summarize like, what that movie is like because you start to appreciate it for its detail and its mood and its image and its scope than anything that has to do with a narrative structure because there there almost isn't one at times and that's something mm-hmm. that took me as a film viewer a long time to process and adapt to movies that were like that because i really light things that have basis in story structure and literature. And I think that that parallels interestingly with Marqueta because it's sort of cutting both ways. And uh, yeah. we'll get into that a little bit. Well, did you happen to watch anything? Any other extinct world type movies?
1: I did just catch up with the Valley of the Bees, which is another Vlasso film, actually it was its follow up to Marquette de Yeah. <laughs> um which I found a really fascinating work.
0: The production story behind that's really funny. Basically, Marketa Lazarova was like the most expensive film in Czechoslovak film history. It was way the fuck more expensive than it was originally intended to be. So they did the Valley of the Bees as a way to like reuse certain sets and costumes and things from it, except that the vast majority of those things had been destroyed or discarded by the time they started. So they didn't actually save any money doing it.
1: Whoops. (laughs) Bad management, people. That's what happens when you have bad management.
0: See, it does connect to all the themes of the uh, other previous
1: episodes. (laughs) (laughs) So Valley of the Bees is about this young man named Andre who's cast out by his father and joins the Order of the Tectonic Knights. He's raised by this strict monk, and after years of hardships, he escapes from the Order after being wrongly punished, and he goes out to find his former home, and he discovers that his father's dead after all this time. So not only does he take over his father's property, the little empire that he built for himself, he also decides that he wants to marry his stepmother. Yeah. (laughs) Which is totally not freaky and fucked up at all.
0: I think there's an interesting note that the stepmother is his age. Because it opens Mm -hmm. when he's just a little boy, and his father's getting married, and he's like, meet your new mom, and it's like a girl that is his age. It speaks to a characteristic that defines this style of period film that we're talking about, that a uh, fully grown man is marrying a 12-year-old. And then when the fully grown man dies, his son marries that widow. These are characteristics of a society in the Middle Ages. Like These are not things that would be permissible in the modern world. And I think that's the key element. To underscore that a little bit, the opening scene, Andre, the main character, is a little boy, and he plays a prank on his mother-to-be fills up a basket with flowers and gives it to her. And she starts lifting and throwing the flowers around because it's her wedding day. And then at the bottom of the basket are live bats which fly out, scare her. And his dad gets so pissed that he, virgin spring, eats his ass into the wall and nearly kills him. And then, as an act of penance, he's like, I shall devote my son's life to you, God. And then sends his kid off to be in this ascetic order of knights. And so it's just like this incredibly textured nasty medieval world to me.
1: yeah i mean we've all been to some pretty awkward weddings but i don't think any of them have involved life bats
0: the second wedding in that movie is just as bad as the first one unfortunately
1: oh God. yeah no good weddings here Mm-mm. no just don't get married
0: this is like much smaller scale than lazarova it's only like 90 minutes long i was a little bit apprehensive not apprehensive i was a little tentative with it all the way through it was like it's looking really good it has these moments of fucking shocking violence to it that really are like whoa um it reminded me i just made the virgin spring joke but being based on this pair of knights one of them being particularly faithful almost fanatical and then the other one who kind of throws away his chivalry and like becomes a lord and represents embracing the contemporary values and not christianity reminded me of Boncito and Bjornstein's characters in the Seventh Mm -hmm. Seal Mm -hmm. and they're Crusader Knights and they have that very dichotomous existential angst versus existential liberation kind of deal going on. But with that Virgin Spring level of like nastiness, of violence.
2: I haven't seen Valley of the Bees, but a lot of what you're describing about that film, certain plot elements, certain things involving certain characters, I'm already seeing echoes of certain characters and certain plot beats, and even just certain general thematics dynamic Things in Marketa Lazarova as well. I mean, you have the core dynamic of the two warring factions, the more advanced and the more sort of regressive. And you even have a character within the more regressive faction who has engaged in an incestuous relationship and who ends up ultimately being a kind of not necessarily a martyr figure, but certainly a tragic one who is wielded essentially by his father and meets a tragic end. Obviously, these were things that Lachille must have been fascinated with or ideas that he must have been keen on exploring in terms of depicting and realizing this complicated world with these two sides of regression and progression essentially pulling at each other while also simultaneously fulfilling very selfish desires Mm.
0: they're both based on books and i was thinking that they were based on ones by the same author but they're not so (laughs) nope they just have these kind of overarching parallels
1: we need a support group for check writers apparently
0: (laughs) (laughs) these movies both of these two volatil films valley of the bees and Marqueta lazarova are a significant contrast to the czechoslovak new wave films that we've talked about so far those being daisies the cremator the fireman's ball and i think that you would say that they are a pretty big contrast from most of the major films some of the other ones that we've talked about like closely watch trains a Report on the party and the Guest, diamonds of the night hold that thought on diamonds of the night i there are some distinct parallels there and i want to talk about them but in general Focusing as this does on a 13th century setting really deviates from the themes of fascism and communism, which are very contemporary for Czechoslovakia. Those are 20th century history. Mm -hmm. So we're going seven centuries into the past. And I think there's, at least for me, an open question of, like, this movie is right in the thick of this movement. It features actors who we see in other Czechoslovak new wave films. Blasio made other movies that maybe are like more, quote unquote, on topic to some of the other things we talked about, like The White Dove. He's made a lot of like World War Two type of movies. So why the medieval focus? Like, why are we talking about this? And I think that there's a few interesting connections, because Blasio not the only filmmaker within the movement doing this. From the outset, just like we see with World War Two movies, in the early 60s, before the Czech New Wave was said to have begun, that was a subject matter that allowed filmmakers a considerable amount freedom that they would lack making any other type of films. And the same is true for other types of historical films as well. By using a medieval setting, by focusing on themes of religion, recall that communism and the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc would have been atheist at this time, not just in Czechoslovakia, but in Poland or in the Soviet Union. You could make movies set in the ancient world about religious themes that were ambiguous, agnostic, critical of church, things like that. So you could get deeper into the thematic weeds and avoid censorship doing Mm. it and there's also a crossover i would say with children's films and fantasy films which here in america we love to bundle those things together not necessarily true everywhere else but we see some movies for instance by uh fuck it's doing so well sorry
1: you're good all of these names are complicated
0: (laughs) yeah carl zeman who is an animator made a lot of children's films And you can see that there's just a little bit more creative freedom. He's not bound to the strict socialist realism because he's making fantasy stories for children. And we see that throughout the early 60s, into the New wave movies. There are these farcical comedies set in medieval times that get a little bit feisty, that find ways to kind of clap back at the state. We've been doing these kind of comparisons later in the episode, but I'll just drop one really quickly here, called Witch Hammer which is a movie made in 1970, it was banned. Witch Hammer is another medieval Czechoslovak movie that is more along the lines of, like, The Crucible by Arthur Miller, Mm -hmm. which very pointed, thematic movie about witch hunts, right? Witch hunts, I would say, are another thing that fit into this extinct world topic because it's, like, the state brutally fucking tearing its people apart based on skepticism and paranoia, things that are kind of rooted in an ancient mindset but are being used to comment on the realities of 20th century Czechoslovakian communist show trials and things that we talked about on the last episode. So these medieval movies are a way to avoid scrutiny and then work in these complicated themes just like you would see with like Andrei Rublev by Andrei Tarkovsky making this very like faith-based film in the strictly atheist Soviet Union. Yeah. So I think right there is kind of where the entry point for this begins. And there are little things in Marketa Lazarova that do reflect contemporary politics, although with Vlashiel, as we've asserted, he really drags your ass back to the Stone Age like he'd by the fucking bootkill.
1: <laughs> yeah, the first time I ever saw this film, I felt like someone hit me in the head with a sledgehammer and then just left me to die in a
2: pile of snow.
0: <laughs> just fucking bleeding out of your mouth.
1: Yep.
2: <laughs> The disparate, almost like kind of the dichotomous intensities of the bright white snow and the dark consuming dirt, you know, these two different textures that just completely cover the film are a total backdrop for basically every element of it. And... That in combination with the style of the film and the way that it's shot and the way that it's edited and the way that it's made. I mean, this is a film with an intense narrative thrust. Like there's a lot happening in this film. Obviously, it's based on a novel, and I'm sure it doesn't incorporate every element of that novel. I know that there was stuff that Vlachiel had to leave out that he wanted to originally include in it, and his original cut, the film would have been much longer than this. But despite that narrative density, it's very oblique in the way that these events are predicted. It's quite difficult to follow to the extent that there's these amusing intertitles about every 15 or 20 minutes that kind of catch you up (laughs) on uh, things that are happening or things that are about to happen, but that's a necessary concession that's a result of the way that Blasiel has chosen to make this film, which is to make it again, so texturally, environmentally immersive and intense and suffocating. Even if the narrative weren't conveyed so obliquely anyway, it would be difficult to follow because you're just so overwhelmed by the sensations and the feelings of being in these places Mm -hmm. and understanding the ugliness of the reality of the way that these factions have chosen to live to a certain extent and are forced to live to a different extent as well. But I mean, Makita Lazarova is absolutely a film you have to see more than once, I think, because so much of that initial experience is about being simply overwhelmed and bowled over by the raw experiential elements of it, that intense effect. And then you come back to it a second time, you're able to start kind of picking through the threads and putting together the story a little bit more clearly. But I think another product of how obliquely the specific narrative threads are told is that you ultimately get just a sense of the broad overarching beats the broad overarching themes the warring factions and then the regal force that they are torn between following versus revolting against and the alliances within and the lack of alliances and all that kind of you get a sense of those more so than you get a sense of any kind of specific narrative threads initially anyway Mm
1: I know we've already been talking about it for a hot minute, but for anyone still wondering what this is about, this is a sweeping epic set in the 13th century, and it tells the story of two rival clans and the bloody feud that arises when Marqueta, the daughter of a feudal lord, is kidnapped on the eve of her initiation as a nun by Mikolas, who belongs to the rival clan. He's the son of the head of this group of thieves.
0: Yeah, particularly you've got Oslik, who is... He has many sons, one of which is Mikolash. He wears this fucking boar cap around. He's what's so called a yeoman, which is a certain, he's not a lord, he's not like a landowner, but he does have like feudal, like associations. Like yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's got people that kind of report up to him. He leads this entire little warring faction. And then he's got a neighbor, Lazar. Lazar is a lord who is a converted Christian, clearly has a pagan past. And that's really one of the first Dichotomies we see in the film is that these two neighbors who are at odds with each other—one is Christian, one is pagan—and particularly it opens, I think, with there's a German king who is allied with one of the Bohemian kings of ancient Czechoslovakia, basically, mm-hmm. and he's coming through and Kozlik's clan robs him on the highway. They steal all his shit, chase him around for a little bit. As Riley said, it's very disorienting between the editing, which has a lot of discontinuity, the very widescreen photography, which often looks like characters are being like stretched side to side. It has this distorted, very immersive approach to the action that makes it difficult to follow the conventional details, but very easy to follow kind of, shit, we're running in the snow, we're running in the woods. And that's the comparison I made earlier to Diamonds of the Night, which has that really down-in-the-dirt cinematography and an editing style that switches you from one point in time to another point in time where suddenly you'll be experiencing someone's memory of something, an association will jostle them, which I think speaks to a subjectivity of the film. The Mm -hmm. film switches perspective from character to character to character. And a lot of times in those memory scenes, you'll even go first person point of view through that character's eyes while they are witnessing whatever it is that they are remembering. So there's an intense level of subjectivity, which is something that I think defines the formal style of the Czechoslovak New wave and is a link between this movie and the others that is like taking a first person view of history as if you have been dropped into the snow and you are there (laughs) trying to not die which is not an easy task
1: it throws you right into the story immediately and it never gives you an opportunity to take a breather
0: those intertitles I love them I was quite happy to be watching it on a blu-ray because there were a few that I just paused on the inner title because I just, I love the design of them in Czech. The the lettering is just, Mm -hmm. they look really cool. And then I find them very funny. They remind me a little bit of the two that you get in, like Barry Lyndon, maybe. It's like medieval cantos, but they're kind of comical in a sense. You know, like a writer telling the story might have sort of like a rhyme, knowing it's like, now you know this is a deeper theme than just getting hit in the head with a stick, right? (laughs) And I like that. I like that it blends older form of literature with cinema and then takes that and then imbues it with a textured gritty violence mm. that makes it feel like you are experiencing mm. real history through poetry mm. and like yeah. for me that's like woo, we're really <laughs> cooking with gas i love this shit
2: Yeah. I mean, it's taking a device that's like on the face of it and on paper functional and imbuing it with, like you say, that sense of poetry, that sense of almost whimsy that places it so well and, and augments the tone so beautifully so that the whole thing feels like it doesn't interrupt the flow and it doesn't do purely expositional work. It just functions as a neat little device that segments the film in nice ways and kind of gives you a bit of a space to breathe because, again, the presentation of the meat of the story itself is so disorienting that it adds a flair that keeps you grounded.
0: That I think can also be disorienting on its own because it'll start being like these characters who you maybe haven't been introduced to yet, and then it'll start you in that scene with that little bit of textual context, but your brain is still having to work these two pieces together between the text and the image. Yeah. And it's not just like a couple episodes back when Luke was talking about the intertitles of some Sjostrom film. He was talking about how the intertitles don't really add anything to what the image is doing, whereas here, they're helping you guide yourself through it, but it's giving you something to work on. It's giving you something to engage with instead of just being Humbled by the imagery at all times, because you are being humbled by the imagery at all times, but it's giving you this entire secondary thing. And you can start using that, I think, to question the textual depth of this movie, because there's also a lot of integrated mythology, scripture, and like other quote unquote literary allusions. They're really more to like faiths and doctrines than like books. But you've got these other layers of, I'll just call them fiction. Uh, and I hope everybody understands what I mean by that, so that you realize that there's a very strong conceptual basis for this film beyond just the senselessness of warfare. That we have a conflict that is kind of initiated in the movie by Marquetta being taken from her home, raped, fucking chained up. But really, that is more an outcome of an ongoing conflict that the movie explores between two faiths, between two families, between there's people that don't agree. And I think that there's a lot of dialogue in this like, out of the frying pan and into the fire or there's an even more poetic one that's like if you cast the devil out the door a demon flies in through the keyhole that is a reflection of Czechoslovakia in the 20th century as they were pulled between the political forces Mm. of Europe. It's not
2: really like a film about conflict and resolution in a typical kind of constructed war movie. It's a film about conflict as an inevitable process and product of human nature. Vlatchel, I think, has this very sort of particular view of humanity embedded within their faiths and embedded within their stations, Mm -hmm. essentially, where conflict is a natural product of that and not something that is ever really a means to an end. It's just a kind of a natural part of Holding that belief system and existing within that space, so you watch the conflict happen, and you watch people die, and you watch horrible things happen to some of these characters, and it has this sense of gravity, but also the sense of inevitability to it as well. Where some will survive and some won't survive, and whatever happens to say Marceta, for instance, is outside of her control to a certain extent. Yet she has to have and does display this stoicism in the face of it. This understanding that there's no end necessarily there's only survival
1: this movie really focuses on this period in time europe was changing was going from pagan to christian and there were a lot of growing pains in that and this is just part of that gigantic process
0: that i think you could argue is still ongoing that even though we're looking into a past where so many things are unfamiliar troubling hard to understand brutal it still is a reflection of human nature of the enduring conflicts of the soul and Mm -hmm. of emotion. I mean, I felt like it was a catechism. I think that this movie is extremely religiously inclined. Blasio was, statedly, an enormous Ingmar Bergman fan. The Bergman comparisons, they're not accidental. It's because he liked the guy. And I do (laughs) think that there is a question in this movie of, how does anything tender survive in such a cold place? How can a young girl live how does love flourish how the fuck did we as a species make it out of such darkness and the answer is because there is mercy and there is forgiveness and there is empathy which is embodied by a number of different people in a number of different ways throughout the story like nikolash letting lazar live is an act of mercy Mm -hmm. and it has tendrils and conflicts and consequences because the world is bigger than just one person's mercy And that's kind of the thing is that there are all these different individuals and it's how do they come together? How do we get them to agree on something? How do we get them to change? And I think it's really telling that somebody living in the political context of the 1960s in Czechoslovakia would say, look, we're probably not going to collectively figure this the fuck out, but we will survive. (laughs) There will still be life. There will still be happiness and family in spite of the cruelty of The way we live, Mm -hmm. or of the times in which we live.
2: There's this idea of if our innate desires and our innate selfishness and things that are built into the way that we operate and the way that we view ourselves within our particular faction of society, you know, if those are inevitably going to lead to conflict, but then equally our innate desires, our innate passions and innate beauty within us that forms a kind of counterpoint to that will equally triumph in its own way and will equally have its effect on the world and help us to survive and sustain and be pro-social as opposed to just purely anti-social as well, which I think you could misinterpret it as if you were watching the film. With a particular mindset but it's not this purely pessimistic even nihilistic view of humanity as fundamentally like well i think there is a a view of humanity as fundamentally cruel but it's not like that's all there is Mm
1: -hmm. absolutely
0: there's an image for me that brought that idea home that might seem a little unconventional and silly where kozlik who again is the i would say kozlik is probably like the most singular embodiment of a medieval cruelty of any of these characters he's a guy that's like fucking kill your enemies don't let any of them live don't let anybody come tell you what to do if the law comes for you kill the fucking cops like he's just hard as a rock he has this big scar on his head and there's an implication that when he got it he didn't even stop fighting the battle he put some clay on it and kept fucking going just a machine uh, not a machine more like a Terminator. yes <laughs> but from the 13th century And there's a scene where this whole film is set in winter. It's kind of the transition of winter into the early, early, early part of spring. And there's a moment where he comes out in his little pig hat and he's wrapped in a sheepskin and he's barefoot and he's just kind of like waddling around in snow. He goes and he sits in the fire and he digs his feet to the fresh ashes to like keep him warm. And there's just a simple humanity to those gestures that is like this dude who is the most violent guy here is just like. We are all this person. We are all the guy that's just like wrapping the blanket around yourself too fucking cold in the morning. God damn it. And to me, that's the key. You cannot lose sight of that because it's important to illustrate. There are no monsters in this world. There are no people who are like born fucking evil. It's just choices that you make. It's just what you do with the time that you're given. I think that that's Much more powerful than suggesting that he's like some wicked force of literary nature. It makes him real and authentic and flawed like anybody else would be. And that is the same way that you get the tenderness and the love. And it's the same reason why the themes of forgiveness have meaning, is because what you are forgiving is a person just like you who has transgressed. But if you constantly seek retribution instead of trying to heal, then that's how you end up with these, you know, not just one guy killing another guy but entire families killing each other fucking nailing people to the goddamn door that's probably the hardest fucking shot of oh. the time to be honest <laughs> just close to the door dude's like fucking strung up like jesus oh, God. so good <laughs> So nasty.
1: but yeah this is a very emotionally honest film in a way that very very few are
0: i particularly as i was watching this as I do a lot now, was thinking that its relationship and depiction of death would be something that really spoke to you, Cole. Because it's oh, yeah. obviously quite abrupt and harsh in the way that a lot of these movies about these time period are. But it's frank. And it's just about, like, you know, life is that.
1: Just yeah. very fragile. There's no lies. There's no, like, softening of anything. It's like, yeah, this is death. This is just what happens.
0: I want to talk about a scene briefly. That Riley has mentioned the specific conflict brings a couple ideas that we've been discussing together. This movie has what seem like surrealistic flourishes, where it will break you out of the narrative and send you into some other thing that often looks like fantasy, like you're looking at a scene from a fairy tale or something. But it actually never shows you anything other than what's real. It's just that sometimes the association, the break from the immersive detail into a new idea feels so jarring as to be a dream Mm -hmm. and one such example of this is a scene that we revisit a couple times and it's between alexander and her brother adam adam is a character that we meet that has one arm and pretends to be dullard but is in fact quite a cunning guy and a good fighter and one of kozlik's sons in this scene we see an encounter between him and his sister where he successfully convinced his sister to make love to him which they did And in so doing, he gets bitten by a snake and then cuts the snake in half with a fucking sword. I think there's a clear biblical Adam and Eve serpent in the garden type of thing going on there with his name being Adam. Mm -hmm. And we revisit that scene at a later point when the older brother Mikolaj is chained to Alexandra, the German prisoner, and to Marketa out in the fucking forest. And he remembers in more detail the events of how his family came to believe. That the poison that was in his blood from the snake bite had to do with the incest. And so to punish him for the incest slash to save his life, his father cut off his arm with an axe.
1: I mean, for medieval times, that's not the most unreasonable reaction.
0: I actually think it's fucking completely insane in medieval <laughs> times because imagine trying to tell your son hey, you have to survive as a warrior bandit in medieval times, and you don't have one of your arms. Best of luck.
1: Well, when you put it that way. (laughs) But he also was trying to have sex with his own
2: siblings, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, which he does not really stop trying to do when we meet (laughs) him in the Current timeline
2: of the plot. On, please, I also think that you know, compared to the rivaling bandit leader Lazar, I would say that Kozlik's never really all there uh, in the movie. I <laughs> yeah. think he's, he's a little bit unhinged from the jump. A little bit That That I think is probably you know not to create this. Illusion that Lazar is someone who's completely sane in every respect. They're both in their own sort of feverish way taken in by, well, this is the thing, because it's like Kozlik is the leader of the pagan tribe, deeply rooted within the system that is slowly being overridden and slowly kind of dying out around them. Whereas Lazar is the political neutral, right? Kind of feeling it out essentially and kind of trying to figure out what the way forward is.
0: He breaks the law, but he's very aware of which laws. You break and which ones will get you hanged. Kozlik has yeah. no such fucking line. Yeah. He will do anything at any time to anybody. Lazar's a little bit more cautious. Yeah, yeah. he's
2: canny, I would say. Like he is able to adjust himself and adjust his decision making and evaluate things in a very immediate, in the moment way with a lot of methodical thinking behind it. Whereas Kozlik is someone who acts in a more primal way. Those quite contrasting dynamics form the source of their clash and kind of dictate the circumstances of how it plays out. For
0: whatever reason, a comparison popped into my head as you were explaining that. Lazar, to me, reminds me of Bernie Birnbaum. That's the John Turturro character in Miller's Crossing, (laughs) who's just kind of like a fucking little rat, like a little (sighs) sniveling piece of shit, who, when somebody's about to come, he's like, no, no, consider chivalry. Think about mercy. Don't hurt me. And then Kozlek in that comparison would be Polito. He would be the Polito character who's just like, I will rip your head off.
2: It's not inaccurate. <laughs> it's a much more sort of high culture comparison than what I thought of, which was like Game of Thrones and Littlefinger and the yeah. Thrappians and, <laughs> and that kind of thing.
0: So, yeah, Lazar is not really as crafty. I'm trying to think what Game of Thrones The Song of Ice and Fire character. He, he's just, he's like sniveling. He's smart, he's deceptive, and like you said, he's canny, but he's not like the fucking master shrewd guy because he's kind of an idiot too. He kinda makes a lot of dumb fucking decisions. Mm. Which I think tethers into one of the most important to this movie that is also part of Valley of the Bees. In the Valley of the Bees, the character Andre is committed to knighthood by his father after his father commits an act of violence against him. In Marqueta Lazrova, all of Kozlik's sons, which they reference a lot as like he has more sons than sheep, there's a heavy burden that is borne by the children of their fathers meaning that if your dad's in jail sometimes you got to go on a suicide mission to get him out of jail right there's this weight that you have to bear just to be somebody's kid that title Marchetta Lazarova that's a patronymic it means Marchetta the daughter of Lazar is what the ova means same Mm -hmm. thing with Vera Hitchelov or Esther Krumbachova. like that's why all those names are like that it's a reference to the father's name so just the title just this girl's name is giving you the hint that it's about what it means to pay the cost of your father's sins. Because of Lazar's dirty dealings, because of his ongoing rivalry, because Coslet can't snuff it out, there is a Romeo and Juliet-style curse on both of these houses. And then we see, as a child of each house even falls in love in a forbidden way, And the punishment they received because of it. I really kind of felt it was quite Shakespearean, to be
1: honest. Absolutely, 100%.
0: So yeah, I think that there's quite a lot of smart content between Adam, Mikolaj, Marchetta, and just what it is like for them under that parental pressure, under that expectation, what it means to carry on the legacy of your culture, whether that's the old pagan culture or the new Christian culture. You know, Mm. and in Romeo and Juliet terms, I almost think that the captain forms like a Mercutio, kind of guy. Not Mercutio. Who am I thinking? Cuz there's like the guy that's Romeo's friend and then Tybalt kills him and then he's like, "Yo, fuck this. I want to fuck the Montagues, fuck the Capulets. We're done with this." There's just a guy in the middle that's sort of the same figure as the captain. Isn't it Mercutio? I forget there's two of them cuz it's one of them dies and the other one. Oh, lifts. I know who
2: you mean. I know who you mean.
0: I think Mercutio's the one that gets killed. He's got
2: another long name, I think like three yeah and he's just something. like and he's oh, just like God. the captain
0: of the guard basically it's the same exact thing there's just no mercutio here i don't know been too long since i read romeo and juliet this is the best ever version of it <laughs> if we can understand it as even a little bit of an adaptation of it which it's not but
2: yeah yeah you know
0: when people commit suicide this type of movie they fucking really die i love color palette riley's already mentioned how it's got these intense blacks intense whites I also think that even in the grayscale stuff, it just has this look of like ash in a fire that has burnt out, where it's just this real beautiful mix of tones that feels kind of cold. I meant to bring this up during a year. One of the things I think is really interesting is that it's a historical film that's in full color, which helps you to appreciate that documentary sensibility and the production details. Mm-hmm. But in a general way, I really think black and white sets this type of movie on a new level because it starts to feel abstract and painterly which contrasts really interesting with the sort of immersive level of detailed realism it's just that it's an inherently photographic abstract when it's in black and white like it is yeah
2: You become more aware of the subtleties of how light is used as well, particularly in some of the indoor scenes and the way that certain characters' faces are lit. It has that kind of post-Renaissance sort of like look to it as a strong result of just how striking the use of light versus dark is.
0: There's one particular shot, I'm trying to remember what the character is, but he's like leaning into the camera and his face just like goes into shadow. And it just has that style of formalism all throughout by using the light, by using absence of light to create really evocative imagery
2: i have to imagine that vlatchell shot a lot of footage not even just i'm talking about the narrative stuff that was deleted but i just have to imagine that he shot a lot of footage within each sequence and within each scene like it's bizarre the way in which the angles and the use of focus and the use of close-up versus further back positioning shifts in an almost kind of random way in certain scenes as well. You just get this impression that there must be this mountain of footage, essentially, that he's gathered and he's just kind of slicing mm-hmm. together to create this sense of, like, false momentum that you get through this purely jagged, disorienting, formal experience. There could be, like, quite meditative scenes that will have, like, bizarre choices in terms of how they're staged, how they're set up, how they're blocked, even, but particularly the space between the camera's position and the actor's that can shift in very abstract ways. There's points in both times where I've seen Market Lazarova where I'm just like, I'm lost with what's happening, (laughs) but I'm just enjoying the experience so much because I'm having such a tactile moment to moment experience with the film.
1: Yeah, this was the third time I've seen it and I still don't have an idea what's going on half of the time that's interesting i don't mind because i'm so immersed in the environment in these characters you know in this world that doesn't exist anymore that i don't really get hung up on the plot details
0: it's interesting that you both say that i think there were many points when i was like wait what the fuck it disoriented me it confused me i'm not pretend i didn't have that experience but i think by the end i was pretty much able to say like it was this and then this and then this and then this and all these little fragments and sequences that was this and that was this I've seen Hard to Be a God three times, which feels like, a you know, this movie on fucking mescaline.
2: Um, yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> oh, no questioning. God. That movie makes this look like it's <laughs> it's a fucking storybook.
1: That movie makes this movie feel like it took place inside like a Bath and Body Works and everyone <laughs> just got clean and nice and, you know, a bunch yeah. of good candles lying around. But
0: yeah, I was obviously primed to just be a complete sucker for the look and feel of this based on that. one cinematography note this is a little bit more present in valley of the bees but there is a lot of inverted imagery in the opening of valley of the bees you're looking at like an inverted black and white photo of bees so then you get these bizarre bright whites blacks things like that just a very fantastic visual look complimented by the music which is very medieval choral the music of both of the two films we've discussed is just glorious. Oh, God.
2: Yeah, I haven't had a chance to mention that yet, but the choral music in this is stunning. Like just the general arrangement mm-hmm. and the intensity of it, the way in which it just adds such a huge embellishment to the intensity, to the portent, to the sense of dread that the film induces is such a profound part of the moving nature of the experience of it as well. Forget his name, but it's the same composer who did the music for The Cremator actually, as well as oh. the other Vlachio film that you mentioned, I think it's a huge part of the experience of this movie. I'm sad I have not gotten to experience this on a big screen, because I can only imagine how overwhelming that would be.
0: Yeah, The Cremator, Shop on Main Street, Baron Munchausen, which is by Carl Zeman, who I mentioned earlier. His name is uh, Jdenek Lishka.
1: The chorus in this is part of that overwhelming experience, because you hear this mountain of voices just constantly singing at you. And like, if you told me that this was like Florence Welch's favorite movie, I wouldn't be surprised at all.
2: (laughs) They've kind of got an almost liturgical quality to them, don't they? Those choral vocals that are kind of echoing this omnipresent sort of overhanging presence of faith as an underlying driver. The film is ostensibly about a shift in society, a gradual shift that's happened over time in the way that the societies are operating. And it's a gradual, grinding, slow change where some are ahead of the curve and some are behind the curve. The underlying vehicle of that change is faith. Yeah. The importance of faith and the role that faith plays in the immediate lives of the people in these different factions as well. And so, again, having that Mm. kind of very liturgical, choral, vocal kind of underhang the whole thing just gives you that. It's like a part of the atmosphere. It's a constant reminder that's, you know, despite how portentous and present it is, it's never overbearing either. It's just a part of the thickness of the atmosphere of the film.
0: I think it helps to remind that this is a psalm or that this is a madrigal, that it is a work of literary art or just a work of art period that has certain structures and themes that it's not necessarily just a portal into you know, documentary observation that it has more design to it than that. yeah, and I think that that's something that I'm really receptive to in terms of these movies about the past. Like I think the seventh seal models itself on. You know, a certain type of stage production or painting in certain ways. We talked about a gear earlier. That's loosely supposed to be based on a diary, which I think helps ground that in the moment to moment psychological experience of that film. So I think that these kind of things that these movies are trying to adapt it helps to become a characteristic, just like those intertitles we were discussing. That helps you to interpret and to analyze all the things that you're experiencing. Mm. I want to shout one dude. Give me one second, because I gotta, I gotta pull his name. I gotta pull the
2: name. Yeah, you're a trooper for just barreling into the pronunciations here. I, I can't even want to a. try some of these. Hey,
1: <laughs> I mean, someone's got to do it. If I try I'd probably start a international <laughs> incident. <laughs>
0: It's okay, Czechoslovakia doesn't exist anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's true. That's true. What
0: the fuck are they going to do? You can't even decide which country you are anymore. <laughs> 2023 stats. My most watched actor of the year, 2023. So I mentioned earlier that there are some actors in this who recur throughout other Czechoslovak movies. It's probably a little bit less weird that way than some others that I've seen. But one really notable cast member is Vladimir Menshik, who we discussed on our cremator episode, although I don't think we necessarily brought him up by name, mm-hmm. he's the guy with the wife that keeps leaving everywhere because she's got the weak stomach and here yeah. he's playing Bernard the priest. Yeah. yeah, He's my most watched actor of the year, officially, he just took over, well actually he's tied with Franco Nero, the actor who plays Django. Mm-hmm.
2: He's an interesting character, actually. We haven't even talked about that character of Bernard. He's sort of this kind of like bumbling and naive figure, bounces through the story, but also at the same time, he seems to be like the one person who may survive everything intact, completely. <laughs> <Yeah>. intact. <laughs> Maybe that's because of how, you know, he doesn't have that intense driving commitment to honor and he's just sort of passive in a way that allows him to be able to appreciate life and he's kind of i guess i suppose a signifier for some of the aspects of mercy and beauty and just sort of simplicity and contentment that you were kind of alluding to earlier zach as a kind of antidote to the film's sort of more destructive storytelling elements
0: he's wronged by both of these two families he shows up at lazar's place after marquette has been taken away and he's beaten and they take a sheep And then when he goes to Kozlik's, they mostly treat him well. They get him aggressively drunk out in the woods. Mm -hmm. And then it's kind of funny. It actually ties into a moment of tenderness that I was talking about. Because when we see Kozlik walking around in that sheepskin, which was so like, oh, that's just he just like me. wrapping himself in the blanket. We find out that is Bernard's sheep. And its decapitated head is on the table. And he walks around the woods with it a little while before dropping it. We see the fucking sheep head rolling down the hill and fucking bouncing. (laughs) This movie's got a lot of great animal moments, as does Valley of the Bees, although they're all kind of brutal. (laughs) Except for the horses. The horses are yeah. They seem like they're having a good time. They make it out all right. There's a great image that I love of the sister Alexandra, who I think is chopping up a cow, might be a horse, but it's strung up by its hooves, by its rear hooves, and she's just taking a fucking hatchet, same one that cut off Adam's arm because of her incest with him, and is like cutting it, at the groin, just splitting it in the fucking half. And when we first meet the German bishop-to-be, who Alexandra has the affair with, we have this great block shot of her looking at him through the groin, Adam is in the frame, and it's just like, really perverse. <laughs> Lots of just fucking bloated, beautiful imagery. I really feel like for all 165 minutes, or however long this is, you could take every frame, and it wouldn't just make a beautiful painting, but it would make a meaningful composition that you could really unpack and discuss for a long time just these shots of like fucking dogs or wolves sitting out in snow all wobbled up looking into the camera or this one that i really love of the horse it's like in some trees and it gets like startled and looks right into the camera and so there's just like a horse looking at you like from way far away which actually kind of gets a little bit of a thing in a gear when they cast that horse off the raft and into the forest Mm
2: -hmm. This is just a complete aside, because it's a film that I had completely forgotten about. I watched it when I was a teenager. But Menchik, who we've just been talking about, is the star of a very innovative and fascinating Czech film called Happy End, directed yes. by Aldrich Lipsky. Mm. The conceit of which is that that entire film is played in reverse. Mm. Like, the whole movie is just it's recorded one way and the whole movie is played in reverse and it's narrated typically you know normally but it's the whole thing is happening in reverse it's it's a really weird sort of formal experiment I don't know I'm not entirely convinced it's a great movie but it's certainly an example of some of the more outlandishly innovative and just kind of really rule-breaking stylistic stuff that was happening in the Czech Mm. New Wave and I don't know if it ever got a proper HD release. No
0: no. I watched that shit with no subtitles on YouTube.
2: (laughs) Yeah that's how I saw it as well but I completely forgot about that film until i was just looking at vladimir Minchik's filmography he's been in 200 movies it's crazy
0: yeah lipsky is an interesting guy the other big movie i saw from him is called lemonade show which is mm. like a farcical take on the western where the good guys and the bad guys are having a feud over which type of soda they like or which type of whiskey they like it's like a whole send-up of like capitalism and consumer culture and genre films and it's very creative i think. He's a good example of what I was talking about at the beginning, where medieval films and children's films have a lot of overlap, and they were things that you could pork and do interesting stuff with. One of Lipsky's earlier films is called Man in Outer Space, which is just kind of like a science fiction film for children. But it's got that same spark of creativity and irreverence that would eventually lead up to films like Dimes of Night, Daisies, it's mm. Lazarova.
2: Mm. Yeah.
0: Just through that spirit of visual experimentation. And it can't be overstated that just weird editing choices, which all of these movies have, that's radical too. Just like we were talking about all the way back with Daisies, like just the act of doing anything outside of conventional norms is an act of rebellion against this strict system. So, this movie being Marquette of Lazarova, I mean, being this enormous, expensive production, considered to be greatest czech film of all time by the czech people i would agree with i think they're right
1: um they made a point
0: that they're they're on something uh i think it's just like really powerful to see one of these films just be so fucking unbridled i think we could praise how movies like the fireman's ball and daisies are 70 minutes long i think happy end is also about that long mm. nice brief experiments but this is like an experiment without the same boundaries and restrictions what can they create with an enormous production budget with countless actors, the costumes, the sets? Mm. Because, like, man, this just puts you in a. An- I don't think I've ever seen another movie, another historical film that just felt this real. I don't want to... You don't want to use the word real because so many of my overarching points are about how it's, like, literature and it's figurative, but right alongside that is an evocation of the past that is fucking just so... Authentic authentic and textured
2: it's tangible without making concessions you know what i mean
0: yeah exactly Mm
2: -hmm. it's tangible as a product of its sheer unbridled commitment to embodying the feeling of that time. It's interesting. It creates this tangibility and it creates this representation, not through realism, kind of through the opposite of that, creating these environments and creating these landscapes and creating these characters that are incredibly tangible, that are incredibly complicated, that are mm-hmm. incredibly fascinating. Yeah. And just completely embedding you within their world and within their lives in this sort of experientially, totally all-encompassing way. Like, it's such an undeniable film. Like, we could debate the greatest Czech film or the greatest Czech New Wave film, but this sort of just towers above the others as this, like awe-inspiring work of continuous and reflexive brilliance. It's like, (laughs) just from a (laughs) moment-to-moment basis, that the craft of this is staggering. And the fact that it then continues for more than double the runtime of these other films that we've talked about, maintaining that level of craft, and not just cycling through that, but actually kind of advancing and making some beautifully poignant points. Yeah, it, it completely upends everything, while at the same time being this beautiful natural logical conclusion to it
1: it's a truly monumental statement that summarizes what everything this movement has been building up towards and then you know cranks it up to 11 and 12 and 13 and then you know the remote breaks <laughs>
0: and i think that there are these comparisons that you can make but it just winds up feeling singular mm-hmm. i've compared it to the Niemitch film diamonds of the night and a thing that i've really gravitated to about Jan Jemich, whose film, a report on the party and the guests this displaced as my favorite of the films of this movement and era. One of the things that I really love about his theoretical approach to filmmaking is that he believed that films had to exist in fantasy, which I completely think is just like a factual statement. Films are not real. Even when you make a documentary film, you've turned it into an image You've turned it into a title card that I can press pause to read. Time doesn't work like that. Death doesn't work like that. I could stop this film halfway through. Like There's just a, an innate unreality to this medium that I think Nemec really, really, really embodied in his works, which exist entirely by their own rules, with their own symbols, their own meanings. And I think that's the key that makes Marqueta Lazarova feel so immersive and realistic without using realism is that it is a cohesive and coherent fantasy world that is based on a screenplay that Vlascio co-wrote over the period of four years and then took three years to film seven years from the beginning point to the point when this was finished. and I think that you can feel all of that time, all of that effort, all of that thought put into creating something that is just monumental, just really, really, utterly masterful stuff my favorite movie that i've watched this year wow
1: oh, hey. nice
0: maybe not the rewatches like i've rewatched you know some of my very favorite movies mm-hmm. rewatched chinatown or whatever but in terms of new stuff in terms of new movies for me this yeah. is my favorite
2: it's a hell of a pick couldn't have had a better climax for this series really yeah. yeah no i completely agree for me it's just a flat-out
1: masterpiece full stop if you haven't seen it i highly highly cannot recommend it enough just go in that first time completely surrender yourself to it you're going to be confused you're going to be disoriented okay just go in embrace it and you can figure it out later
0: definitely do also i would recommend checking out the valley of the bees by francis he's also got an earlier film called the devil's trap which is from 61 Mm -hmm. kind of before the new wave starts that's available and so is valley of the bees from second run films that's an international distributor who makes region-free discs. They actually have almost every major Czechoslovak New Wave, and some Czechoslovak films that predate the New Wave, and some that are after the New Wave. So they really, really do a great job. Probably a lot of, if you've not been watching Criterion editions, probably been watching rips of their stuff. Blast Shield, to me is like one of the great historian auteurs. And to me, it makes his work timeless, because they're so richly detailed, so completely realized, and I've loved every single movie I've seen from him, but this just really took everything to the next awesome. level. So thank you guys so much for joining for this episode for our entire series. You've been listening along. Thank you for sticking with us. If you haven't, please do check out our episodes on Daisies, The Cremator, on The Fireman's Ball. Tomorrow, Cole and I are going to be getting together to talk about a little movie you might have heard of called Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo in our ongoing Sight and Sound series. So stay tuned for that. that will be dropping after this Marchetta Lazzarova episode, provided that nothing weird like a new release that we just have to talk about drops. We're probably going to be doing, as we did last year, a Midway Point Favorites of the Year 2023 film. We're going to be talking about 2003 films coming up sometime soon. So lots of fun stuff planned. Do go and check out GM's and T, where Riley, Jake, Morgan, or discuss music every week. They just hit five thousand subscribers. Did, yeah, one week after hitting four thousand subscribers,
2: congrats! We've been having some bizarre, bizarre momentum recently. Love to see that. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. So yeah, we're we're just enjoying the moment for what it is, for sure. Yeah.
0: Stream the new Jesse Ware album. <laughs> go listen to. Oh yeah, Riley, <laughs> Jake talk about 100%. Jesse One hundred percent. Do it. Well, thank you guys again. I really appreciate it. This has been so much fun I'm so glad that we got to do this and make it happen thank you for having me of course we look forward to talking to you again in the future we'll have to find something just as fun and exciting as these to get together and mm-hmm, talk about
2: absolutely again.
0: well thank you everybody bye, bye. Ciao. <laughs>